continue in our series this morning, Supernatural. And we began last week just laying the foundation for that series. And today we're going to talk about the first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, which is a supernatural love. But before we do that, I just want to go before the Lord and just pray a prayer of praise to Him for who He is and for what He's done through His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we come before You and just thank You that You are, that You just are, that You are our Father, that You are our God, that You are Lord that your son Jesus Christ is our defense, that he is our righteousness. Father, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that you're a comforter, that you are a guide in our lives, that you are sovereign and that you care, that you are love, that you know everything that's happening in each one of our hearts and each one of our minds, and that you desire to speak to us. Please speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to me, it's somewhat ironic that today I stand here and talk to you about love because I actually scheduled and planned to speak on love last week. And as I stand here today, it is my wedding anniversary. <laughs> so I better have something to say, right? <laughs> it's my 12-year wedding anniversary with my wife, and I stand here and talk to you today about love. An interesting topic because it's a topic that we all know something about. Everybody here knows something about love, whether it's just a desire to be loved. Maybe you've received love and you want to love other people. Maybe you have a friend that you love or you have a a spouse that you love or you love your kids. And there's love that's all over our culture. It's natural for us to want to love and to, to be able to demonstrate love. And if you just look, you do an internet search. It's why when you do an internet search on Google, I typed in this week, examples of love. You come up with so many things. 254 million results came up when I typed that in. It's why there have been thousands, maybe millions of songs that have been written about love. There are songs that will talk about doing anything for love, (laughs) except, and I won't do, and there's a little list that goes with it, and there's all kinds of songs that are out there about love. If you watch movies or read books, there are all kinds of love stories out there, Titanic-sized stories to smaller stories about messages in bottles or notebooks or different things along those lines. There's all kinds of love stories that are out there. Love is natural. For so many of us, in so many different ways, and let me ask you this, if love is so natural, why are we commanded to do it? If love is natural, why did God have to command us to love? And maybe you've read the Gospels before, and there's a unique encounter that happens where there are these people that are trying to trick Jesus, trying to trap him in different times, and one of the guys is called an expert in the law. That means he knows the Old Testament really well, and he knows all the commandments of God, and he's trying to trick Jesus into invalidating some of the other commandments. And he says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is this. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And verse 38 says, that's the greatest commandment. Oh, and by the way, since you're such a sharp student expert in the law, I'll give you some bonus material. Verse 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he gives the two greatest commandments, and they're both the same. Love. Love God. Love each other. Why, if it's so natural for us, does he have to command us to do it? And the reason why is because the kind of love he's commanding is not a natural love. It's a supernatural love. There are natural loves. We naturally, as parents, love our children. You naturally, when you fall into romantic love, are in love with that person, with a romantic kind of love. You have love even for some friends because they've got your back, you've got theirs, you're there through difficult times for them, they're there for you, various reasons You've got a a love like that, a brotherly love, a human-to-human kind of love. But the kind of love that we're talking about here is not a natural kind of love. It's a supernatural love. That's what we're commanded to love with. It's the kind of love that wants what's best for the person being loved, regardless of what it means for you. In fact, you could even say you want what's best for the person being loved, even if it means what's worst for you. 
It's the kind of love that we see Jesus demonstrate, the very nature of the fact that he came to this earth and became sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. That was demonstrated in that. The most vivid picture is when he goes to the cross, a picture of someone wanting what's best for someone else when they want the worst for you. It's the kind of love that he demonstrated when they were beating him in mockery before he went to the cross. And maybe you've heard that story before where they're playing a game with him called Blind Man's Bluff and they put a blindfold over him and they hit him in the face a bunch of times and they back up to mock him and say, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. I wonder if in that moment, Jesus looked at them and just through his eyes spoke, if you only knew how much I love you. It's a picture of someone wanting what's best even for someone who wants the worst for them. You think about when they tore out his beard and they spit in his face and they mocked him. I wonder if he looked at the man, tore out his beard, and thought to himself, if you only knew, if you only knew how much I love you. Or when they were flogging him, to actually love the person who's doing the flogging. Most of us, naturally, what we would do is we'd want that person to die. And he's dying so that that person can live. Or when he goes to the cross. Now, metaphorically, we all put Jesus on the cross. We all nailed him to the cross. That's true. But have you ever thought about there was a man that was responsible to nail Jesus to the cross? That when he came to that place and he laid himself down on that cross, there was somebody who took a nail, put it at his wrist, put his knee on his elbow, and was going to drive that nail through his wrist. I wonder if that moment, and we don't have every word that was recorded, I wonder if in that moment Jesus looked at that man. Maybe he even said, I'm doing this for you. To love someone, to want what's best for them, even when they want the worst for you. It's the kind of love, that's why Jesus is able to say to us, love your enemies. And do you have that kind of love? Can you love with that kind of love? That's the supernatural love that we're talking about today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 for this whole message this morning. Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse 16 where we were at last week. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me. Galatians 5, 16, we're going to focus in on verse 22. If you weren't with us last week, what we did is we laid the foundation for this series. And we talked about a fulfilled life. And we were talking about these people in Galatia and how they were trying to live a fulfilled life. And there were different ways they were trying to do it. They had been given this gift of grace, given something they did not deserve, a gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And they've received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now they're trying to figure out how to live this thing out. And there's a group of them that are thinking, what I do with this gift is I create a bunch of rules around it and formulas for it to try and execute it. And that will give me the fulfilled life. And they were wrong. And there was another group of people that was, well, I was given this gift freely, so I'll just freely do whatever I want. And because God's given me this gift of forgiveness, and I want to sin, I'll just keep sinning, he'll keep forgiving, it kind of works out, it's like a match made in heaven. And they were wrong. And neither one of them leads to the fulfilled life. And we saw last week that the fulfilled life is a filled life. It's filled with the Spirit of God. That's why we're committed in this passage to keep in step with the Spirit to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. It's like Ephesians says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. And when the Spirit fills your life, there are some supernatural characteristics that become evident in your life. The first one is love. Look at the passage with me. In Galatians chapter 5, I'll start reading verse 16. Galatians 5.16 starts off like this. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature wants, desires, what is contrary to the spirit. There's a conflict inside of you. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. That's why sometimes you want to do right and you don't do it. Or you don't want to do wrong and you do. You don't do what you want. 
And then verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then the acts of the sinful nature, the things that come naturally for us, they're obvious things. They're sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry. That's having something other than God on the throne of your life. Witchcraft, which is actually a Greek word for drug use. and Jealousy, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, which is anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, it's anger, arguing, getting little clicks, gossip, all that stuff, and envy, drunkenness, and it keeps going on. Orgies and the like, there's many more things that could be listed. We could just keep listing stuff for the rest of the time. And Paul says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Those desires, they change. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's a continual process. And what we see here is in these ten simple verses, seven times the Spirit of God is mentioned. We're to live by, to walk in the Spirit, to be led by, to be filled with, to experience the fruit of the Spirit of God. And when we do, the first characteristic that becomes evident in our lives is really a foundational characteristic. It's the source of the other characteristics. It's like a fountain that flows into all the other characteristics is love. But it's a spirit-empowered love. It's a supernatural love. And here's the difficulty with this kind of love. It's unexplainable. See, supernatural love is an unexplainable kind of love. And that's not totally abnormal for us because we live in a culture where there's lots of things that are unexplainable. And just think about your daily life. And some of you maybe live in this area or at least are in this Briar Creek area some of the time. I was thinking about that. You know, I don't know if you ever have tried to go to Chick-fil-A before here in town. Not on Sunday, of course. It's Christian chicken, so they're not open on Sunday. But if you've ever tried to go over there before, why don't they let us turn left into Chick-fil-A over here off of Lemley Road? That makes no sense to me. It is unexplainable to me why they would put that island there. So that I, can't, it's a ten, I know what it is. It's because they know so many Christians go to Chick-fil-A, and they want to put us in a precarious situation where we've got to turn in there and make an illegal turn, which I've done. Confessed it. It's all over with. All right. It's unexplainable to me why they put that island right there and want to hinder business at this moment. It's unexplainable to me why it is that every parent, there's no book that's ever said this, but every parent universally knows that if you get frustrated with your kids, you count to three, right? It's not count to five, it's not count to two. And the kids somehow just know that after three, something bad happens. Why is it the number three? Why isn't it 17? Does that mean you're like a pushover? Why isn't it two? Does that mean you're not patient enough? I'm not saying this is good parenting skill, but we've all done it. One, two, don't make me say, unexplainable why it's the number three to me. And this love that we're talking about in this passage, it's unexplainable. (laughs) That doesn't mean I won't try to explain it. What I mean by it's unexplainable is that it's not natural. It makes no sense. It's illogical. It's supernatural. And it's a theme in Galatians chapter 5. If you look at the passage, you'll see this love mentioned in verse 6. It's mentioned in verse 13. It's mentioned in verse 14. And then it's this fruit This result of living by the Spirit in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And the word that's used here for love, it was a word that actually was not real popular in secular Greek at this time. It was a word that really got coined as a Christian word. They had words for romantic love, for that's natural. When you fall in love, you have what's called eros, romantic love. And if you've got a best friend or a sibling or maybe even a child's love for their parents, they have phileo, it's brotherly kind of love. It's human to human kind of love. And parents to their children, it was, it was called storge. It was a, a Greek word for love that a child or a parent has for a child. But 
The word that's used for love here was specifically a Christian word. They didn't invent it. They gave it new definition. It was the Christians and Jesus Christ himself who gave this kind of love that actually wants what's best for another regardless of what it means to you. Wants what's best for another even if it means what's worst for you. It was the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated when he came to this earth. They didn't know what to do with it. They couldn't understand it because their teachings didn't teach this kind of love that he would give his life for people who desired to kill him. It's the kind of love that made Christianity revolutionary. It's what set Christianity on fire around the world and made it a revolutionary, life-changing thing. Because it was the Christians in the first century who would go out at cost of their own lives and love other people. When there were plagues that came through the land, it was the Christians that would go into homes of people who had been abandoned by their family into the homes of people they didn't know or barely knew and try to nurse people back to health at risk of their own lives and sometimes just be there at their bedside as they died. It was the Christians who went out and they would adopt children that were abandoned, left on garbage heaps because they had special needs and they would bring them into their home at their own expense, raise them as their own children, and the world took notice when they saw this kind of love. Because there, there wasn't a category for this kind of love. A, a kind of love that actually wants what's best for another, regardless of what it means for you. In fact, if you read ancient philosophers, you'll see that Aristotle, this popular name, he writes about love. And he basically says, in, in his thinking about love, that if you're not attractive in some way, it's ridiculous, illogical for you to even desire to be loved. If you don't bring something to the table, if you don't have something to offer someone else, then how could you even want to be loved? Plato says, direct quote, love is for the lovely. So that was the thought process. Here's my question. What if you're not lovely? What if you don't bring something to the table? What if you don't have something to offer someone to earn their love? Then what? In fact, what if you're repulsive? What if you're unattractive? What if you bring detriment and difficulty? And let me ask you this. What do you hate? It's a little exercise for you to be thinking along the lines of this. What are some things that you hate in life? And maybe you hate waiting in line, or maybe you hate that you can't turn left into Chick-fil-A, or maybe you hate at the end of the plane that they make you sit there for 10 minutes no matter what's going on and it gets all sticky. Maybe you hate that kind of stuff. Maybe you hate scrambled eggs, or maybe you hate whatever it is. But I'm not talking about that. Like, those are things that we really dislike, we wish they were different, they're inconveniences. I am saying, when I ask you, what do you hate? What makes you want to get out of your seat? What makes you angry? That makes you want to yell? What makes your blood boil? What, what do you hate like that? It makes you sick. Maybe an injustice in our world. Maybe you hate when you see someone that you know did something wrong, they get away with it. Maybe you hate that. Maybe there's a person that personifies something that you hate, and so you, you, you'd almost say you, you hate them. Or maybe you hate injustices in our world. Maybe you hate that there's people that are going to die today because they don't have enough food. And there's enough food in this world for everybody to eat today. Maybe you hate that so many people will die of preventable diseases. Maybe you hate that kids are hurt by people. That are, they take advantage of vulnerable people, older people, younger people, because they're stronger. Maybe you hate that kind of stuff. Do you know what God hates? God hates. I mean, it makes his blood boil. He says in the Proverbs, it's an abomination to him. He hates sin. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, he says this, it is, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. He hates it. It makes his blood boil. It would be what would get him out of his seat. It would be angry about sin. Now, do you know what God sees when he looks at us? Sin. 
And I don't just mean our deception and our lustful thoughts and our judgmental thoughts and our pride and our anger and any activities that we've done that are sin. I'm not just talking about mental sins. I'm not just talking about heart sins. I'm not talking about behavioral sins. We are sin, even our good deeds, before we come to know Christ. And we try to dress ourselves up and look good for the ball, right? Like, if God, you'll be pleased with this. This is my defense. I'll do these things. And, and I'm talking about even if you, like, gave your whole life to work in Calcutta with poor people, feeding them, washing feet. And maybe when you came home for a break, you worked at the Raleigh Rescue Mission and then went to the senior citizen's home and adopted some children while you were here. And maybe that's what you did. That was your life story. Do you know what that looks like for God? Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says this. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, not our unrighteous acts, not our lying and deceiving and pride and judgment and envy and jealousy and sexual morality, not all that stuff, all our righteous acts, when we're dressed up for the ball, all of our feeding people to try and make God happy with us, all of our trying to do all these good deeds so that we can be more presentable before God, they're like filthy rags. And the Hebrew there is even more graphic. It actually gives a picture of used menstrual cloth from a woman's period. It's disgusting. That's the best we can present to him. So when he looks at us, he sees what he hates. Now with that in mind, think about these verses. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were, not just something we did, it's who we were, still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21 says it like this. God made him who had no sin, Jesus... To be sin, he became what he hates. To be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So he became what he hates, so that he could see us as the one he loves. Because when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, what he sees isn't the unrighteousness. Whether it's your acts that you were trying to please him with, which were unrighteous, whether it was the things you did you knew were a violation of him, whether it was thoughts that you had, whatever it is, he doesn't see that. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. You're washed clean by the perfection of Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're now seen as the righteousness of him because he loved you so much. He became what he hated. That's love. And you know you can love with this kind of love when you get to the place where you stop using people to meet your needs And you rejoice in the fact that God uses you to meet theirs. It's when you stop using people, and think about how we use people in the name of love so many times. It's because they bring some to the table, because they're attracted to us, and so it meets some need that we have, that we want them. Because, And maybe it's physical attractiveness, maybe it's not. Maybe they bring some resources to the table that you could use, whether it's mental resources, financial resources, gifts that they have, time that they have, whatever it is, something that you can use from them. And so you demonstrate kindness to them. You demonstrate love to them. You're using them. You're not really showing them this kind of love. You're doing something so that you can get something. Maybe being around them helps your reputation. There are all kinds of different reasons why we would want to be with someone. Maybe they know stuff that we want to learn from, but you're getting something from them. That's why you're loving them. See, this kind of love, you know you have it when you stop using people to meet your needs and you rejoice in the fact that God's using you to meet theirs. That's supernatural kind of love. There's good news and bad news about this kind of love. The good news and bad news is this. You can't do it. 
I can't give you steps to do it. I can't give you little cycle formulas to do. Uh, there's not. I define it well enough that you can still understand an unexplainable kind of love. And then you kind of go out and try and apply this thing. If you had these disciplines in your life, then you would. No, here's how it happens. is You're filled with the Spirit. You live by the Spirit. Look at our passage. You're led by the Spirit. That you keep in step with the Spirit. That you walk by the Spirit. And God produces, the verse says, it's a fruit in your life. It can happen in your life. That's why it's still good news. But it can only happen by the power of the Spirit when you're dependent on the Spirit of God in you to produce this kind of love because it's a change of desire. It's not just a change of behavior. So it has to be an internal change. But it can happen. And we have people in this church that have seen it happen in their own lives. We've got one woman who shared with me recently. She didn't know when she was Facebooking me this message that, that she was sharing this kind of supernatural love, but she was telling me about something God had done in her life. She started attending our church, started going to Celebrate Recovery, a ministry we have that meets on Thursday night. She started going there because she wanted to work through some of the anxiety that was happening in her life. God started working through lots of things. And you remember when we talked about being filled with the Spirit, one of the things that God does when you start to depend on the Spirit, you start to rest in the Spirit, you start to follow the Spirit, is He weeds out the stuff that hinders you from experiencing these characteristics. That's one of the things that God started to do in her life. And her story is that she got married when she was pretty young. She's 18 years old. And she found out that her husband had been cheating on her before they got married, that he had been sleeping with another woman. And she was pretty angry about it, expressed that hatred and anger towards the woman that he had been cheating with. And then through their marriage, uh, she found out that he started wondering things like maybe we had a child together and didn't know about it and all that stuff. Well, a few weeks ago, she was reading a newspaper she saw this woman's name, and so it sparked these thoughts in her mind. And So she got on Facebook, you know, the technology we have, looked this woman up, and found her. And what was there on her, on her profile was a picture of her and her children. Her oldest child looks just like this woman's ex-husband. And then she started to look at the birth date and started to realize for this to have happened, they would have had to have been together not before we were married, but after we were married. Can you imagine the pain in that moment? and the hurt, and the anger, and the bitterness. And she sat with this revelation for a couple days, and then she decided to write this woman a letter on Facebook. Let me, I'm going to read some of it to you. She's given me permission to read some of it to you. She apologizes for the hatred she had for this woman when she found these things out. And then she says this, It's bothered me over the years, and I feel that God has moved my heart to finally reach out to you. And let you know that I'm sincerely sorry for making your life so hard when I found out about you. It was so much easier to be angry at you, and my anger was misplaced. I'm not proud of how I treated you, and that's not me. That's not who God created me to be. No matter what happened, we're all where we are intended to be. It sounds a lot like a promise from God. We're all exactly where we're supposed to be, regardless of all the circumstances. If the truth had come out fully, I would have reacted in such a way that would have cut the biological father of my older son out of my life before my beautiful boy could be born. Again, I'm sorry for the way things happened, and I'm sorry that I was so hurtful to you. I hope you can forgive me. She's asking for forgiveness. Remember, she's not the one who had the affair. How does something like that even happen? It's not natural. It's illogical. It makes no sense. It's unexplainable because it's supernatural. 
And a supernatural kind of love is an unexplainable kind of love. Here's the problem. Most people have never experienced this kind of love. They've never seen this kind of love. And so when you talk about this kind of love, it's nice words. But let me tell you something. People are living this out. We desire as a church to live this out. When we talk about our vision as a church of seeing a city redeemed for Jesus Christ, that we believe the scripture could actually become true, that there could be a city on a hill where people are actually drawn to our city because they see the glory of God. They don't realize that's what it is. They see our good deeds and they glorify our Father who's in heaven. That because of our life and the way that we love, they would then be drawn to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be something? It's why we do some of the stuff we do. It's why when a guest fills out a connection card, and if you're a guest, I'd love for you to fill one out. But if you fill out a connection card, we make a donation to a ministry that rescues people out of human trafficking. Why do we do that? Well, because it's a terrible tragedy that's taking place in our lives that there are actually humans being treated as objects, being bought and sold for the sake of someone else's pleasure. We want to rescue them out of that and then serve them when their lives are so used to being used against their will. And you know what? Many of those people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's why we give packages. Last month we gave about 50 packages to refugees that are coming to the Raleigh-Durham area from all over the world because they want to experience the freedoms that there are in America, experiencing religious persecution, all kinds of persecution, and so they come here. And they have basic needs that we want to meet because we want to give them a tangible expression of God's love. It's why we push and encourage and challenge and invite people continually to use their gifts, their abilities, their skills, their resources, whether it's financial resources, talents, whatever it is, to impact this community for Jesus Christ. Whether it's through a ministry we have, something like Southbridge Serves, or various things that we do, or it's just challenging you in your daily life, where you work, where you live, where you have your being, in your neighborhood, at the coffee shop, wherever it is that you go, that there are needs all around you that God wants to meet and he wants to use you to meet those needs. But in order for that to happen, you have to want what's best for others, regardless of what that means for you. That's supernatural kind of love. Few people have experienced it, and it's not how Christianity is known. If you look at the research, Christianity is known as hypocritical, judgmental, anti-gay, warmongering people that love a certain political party. That's how we're known. 85% of people that are outside the church would say that Christians are known because as they're hypocrites. So wouldn't it be interesting if you did something hypocritical at a store, say? Say you're at Target and you do something hypocritical, whatever it is. You say one thing, you do something else, and someone walks up and says, You must be a Christian! Unfortunately, that's not what the scripture says we're supposed to be known by. Do you know what the scripture is saying? John chapter 13, verse 35, before the word Christian was invented, Jesus says this, By this all men will know that you're my disciples, you're my followers, if you love one another. People need to see this. They need to tangibly experience this. That they would see the way that we love, they would glorify our Father in heaven, but going beyond even just seeing it, they would experience it. In order for that to happen, we have to recognize the needs of the people that are all around us. And supernatural love, it recognizes needs. There's a difference between being told, hey, you should watch for hungry people and people that don't have shoes and people that need this and there's people that don't have people to help them with their homework and so tutor and kind of filling out the list of all the things to do. And then you just start to grab it because you realize because you love those people because God's changed the desire. There's a difference in those two things. It's like some of you have seen the story that's taken place with Penn State and the scandal there that's happened where there was a coach that was abusing children. A terrible story. I won't get into all the details of the story, but maybe you remember, I think it was about a year ago, this all started to hit the news. And what ended up happening, people were irate at the fact that there was a grad student that actually walked in on one of these situations. They walked in on this man in the shower with a 10-year-old boy. And then he didn't intervene, he left. And eventually told his boss, which fulfills his legal obligation. He told his boss what he saw, reported it to him, now now he's done. But what we don't oftentimes hear about is there's a story that goes beyond that. And that specific situation 
And Penn State and some of their ministries on campus talked about this. In that specific situation, when that boy went home, his mom realized there was something different. She didn't see all that took place in that event, but she saw that he had wet hair when he got home. He'd been in a shower. And so she started to interrogate her son. Found out he was in the shower with an older man. That's not supposed to happen. And so she doesn't know all the details. But just with that little fact that he had wet hair, she goes to the police. She tells the police and then cooperates with the police in a wiretap investigation. Confronts this man, this Coach Sandusky guy. And rebukes him. And tells him he's never to be in the shower with a boy again. Now, what's the difference between the guy who met his legal obligation and a mom based on a small piece of evidence recognizing a need? It's love. Because love recognizes needs. We talk about loving with a God kind of love, a supernatural kind of love. That's the kind of love that God had for you. He looks down, he sees what he hates in you. But you know what it is? It's evidence of a need. Your greatest need is that you need a savior. You've got a void in your heart that you will try to plug with all kinds of different stuff, but you will never meet that need until you know Jesus Christ is your savior. And so he sends his son, Jesus Christ, his one and only son, because he loves you. Love is what motivates the need, or motivates him meeting the need. He loves you. He sees the need. He recognizes the need. As much as he hates sin, he loves you. I'm so glad that he, Jesus Christ would be able to cry out exactly what David cries out in Psalm 63.3, that your love is better than life, that he cared more about loving you than he did about his own life. That's biblical love. That's the kind of love that we're called to demonstrate. Where we care more about them seeing the love of God than we do about our own lives. So regardless of what it means to us, even if they want what's worse for us, we want what's best for them. That's supernatural kind of love. That's the kind of love that recognizes needs. Here's the problem, though. We all still have needs. And what will happen at churches all across the country today, and I'm not just talking about Southridge, all over the place, is that hundreds, thousands of people will fill in doors, and they'll come into an auditorium, and they'll want to have their needs met, because you have needs. And they'll want to have you know, somebody that's up front talking say the right thing. They'll want somebody that's leading worship to sing the right thing, read the right verse, go through some right ritual. Something will happen where God will meet with them and fill some need in their lives. And what happens is we're so focused on our needs, we're blinded to the needs that are all around us. Amen. And you think about today, you're sitting next to someone with needs, I promise. And what some of those needs are, you will sit in community group this week or maybe tonight, And you'll have conversations with some people whose marriages are about to fall apart and they're about to have a divorce and they haven't told anybody, will you recognize the wet hair, the small signs, the little things that point this out? You'll bump shoulders today with people who've never dealt with pain from their past. I promise. You'll shake hands perhaps with someone who's thought about taking their own life in the last 12 months. But do you recognize those needs? See, would you want what's best for others You believe, even though your life might be really good, you believe that God's love is better than your life. You come to the place where you actually recognize the needs of those around you because you have a fruit in your life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says that this is a fruit. Do you know what fruit's for? It's not to put on display. It's to be consumed. It's to be eaten. Now, sometimes you see fruit that's put on display to like decorate houses and hospital rooms and all that kind of stuff. If you see fruit like that, nine times out of ten, it will be fake fruit. We can take the analogy further. There are certain people that will try to love like this because it's what Christians are supposed to do and you write it down, discipline yourself. Now, I'm talking about a dependence upon the Spirit that produces a real fruit in your life because you've got people around you that are starving for this kind of love. This is a fruit that God produces in our lives so that the people around us that are starving for this kind of love will experience it. 
They'll see it in our lives. They'll be drawn to it. They'll experience it from us. And then they'll be drawn to God. That's a supernatural kind of love that recognizes those kinds of needs. And not only is this a love that's unexplainable, not only is this the kind of love that sees needs, but this is a kind of love, and don't miss this, that requires faith. Supernatural love requires faith. And you look through this passage, and you'll see multiple times that love is mentioned up in verse 6. It says this, and this is a powerful statement. Paul's talking about how our works don't matter. It doesn't matter whether we're circumcised, uncircumcised. None of that stuff's going to please God. He says this, there's this one thing that counts. The only thing that counts... The only thing that counts, pay attention to this, is faith expressing itself through love. Nothing else counts. Nothing else matters. The only thing that counts is faith. We're saved by faith, not of our works. We can't boast about this. The only thing that counts is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The only thing that counts is faith. And how do you see faith? It expresses itself through love. This is a consistent theme for Paul. You go to all of his letters in the New Testament, and you see faith and love together. A lot of times in the greeting, I greet you, I'm so thankful for your faith, and I rejoice in hearing about your love. Maybe it's love for Paul, maybe it's love for God, maybe it's love for the other people. I rejoice in hearing about these things. You look at that great passage on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's faith and love are both there. But here it says, the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. And you go through and you look at people's lives that walk by faith, that are filled with, guided by the Holy Spirit of God, and you see love. Look at Moses. Hebrews chapter 11 has a whole list of people that live by faith. If you want to study on your own, Hebrews chapter 11, you see Moses. He lives in an Egyptian palace, has all the privilege of this world, and he leaves that by faith. He gives up the luxury. He gives up the privilege to go and lead a bunch of complaining servants through the wilderness. Why? He wasn't in slavery. He was living in a palace because he was taking a step of faith and it expresses itself through love. You go through that chapter and you see multiple other people doing the same thing. You look at a guy like Joseph. You know, I don't know if you know Joseph's story or not, but you can read about him in the book of Genesis. What happens is Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons. <laughs> That's a full house. And he's the favorite of dad. So the brothers don't like him a whole lot because if you're a parent, just a tip. It's not good to have favorites. It doesn't help them out a whole lot either. And so the brothers, they don't like him. And he has a dream one time. His dream is essentially that he's the man. If you have a dream that you're the man or woman, I suggest you don't share that with anyone. That's not a good way to win friends, okay? And apparently Joseph didn't get that memo. And so Joseph, he goes out and he tells, Hey, I had this dream last night. You were all bowing down to me. So they hate him even more now. One day, they're out in the field together. No one else is there, so they don't think there's any accountability. They beat the snot out of Joseph. They throw him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. They take his coat back to Dad. It's his favorite son, right? He says, he must have been mauled by an animal. Dad mourns, the 11 brothers go on, live their lives, and in the meantime, Joseph is sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, put in prison. What do you think went through his mind as he laid there in prison, you know, bouncing that ball off the wall or a rock off the, you know, things, catching it and doing that whole deal? What do you think went through his mind as he was doing that? Wasting time, letting his life waste away. Do you think he ever thought to himself, if I ever come face to face with my brothers again, I'm going to, I'm going to make them pay. I'm not going to, I'm going to hold it against them. I'm going to, what would we do? What ends up happening through God's providence is that he gets out of prison and he actually works his way into being one of the, the leaders of the whole nation that he's in, a foreign nation. And he's in charge of the food supply and there becomes a famine in his home country and so his brothers come to get food and he's in charge of who gets food and they stand before each other. Now there's been years and years and so they don't, they don't recognize him. And now he's got the situation. He recognizes them. And when they start to speak in their foreign language, he knows their foreign language. And when they start to ask for food, 
What would you do? He generously gives them the food. He weeps over the pain that took place in his own life. But he gives them the food. He demonstrates tangibly love, forgiveness, generosity. He's demonstrating love. And he tells us why he's able to do it. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, he says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That sounds a lot like a promise that won't be sent via Facebook. It's a promise that Joseph didn't know yet, but he knew God's sovereignty, knew God's control. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we talked about it a few weeks ago. God not only knows what's best for us, he wants what's best for us. So he can even take our junk and the difficult stuff and use it. And so Joseph says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 20, we'll put that back up. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. It's bigger than just my life. It's the saving of many lives. And if I would trust God that he actually wants what's best for me, even when other people want what's worse for me, that he can use that and redeem it in my life to now give me an opportunity to demonstrate his kind of love, the kind of love Jesus demonstrated when he went to the cross, the kind of love that he demonstrated when his beard was being torn out, when he was being hit in the face, when he's being flogged, when he's being nailed to a cross, that you get the opportunity to demonstrate that kind of love. But you know what? It requires faith. And faith is when you believe God's promises to the point where you don't just claim them because they make you feel good in a difficult time. There's nothing wrong with that but you make your decisions based on them. When you take a promise of God and you will actually let it guide and direct your life, that's faith. And he's taking the truth that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that he must want what's best for me. He created me. He knows me. And then we get in the New Testament, we're told he not only wants, knows what's best for you, he wants what's best for you. That If you would make decisions based on that, you could love by faith. And it's the only thing that counts. Faith, expressing itself through love. So let me ask you this. What act of love might the Spirit of God be calling you to do that would require faith? And I don't know what the Spirit is speaking to your heart. I don't know if it's about people from your past. I don't know if it's about something that's going on now. But I know that the Spirit desires to supernaturally demonstrate this love through our lives. I know that the way that He does it is in the lives of others. I know there are people that are hungry for these things. And so I believe that the Spirit of God probably would speak to your heart and call you to love someone. And maybe that's a face of someone, maybe it's a situation that's going on, but what act of faith, what act of love would require faith by you this week? Not 20 years from now, not someday, not theoretically, maybe if this situation arose, but what act of love would require faith from you? And for some of you, the act of faith would be to receive the love that's being offered to you by Jesus Christ. That he loved you so much. He took upon your sins on the cross and gave his life so that you could experience his love. And he wants to give you his love today and you need to receive him as your savior. And your step of faith, you're crossing the line, you're making that decision to trust Jesus Christ would be your act of faith to receive that kind of love. Others of you, you've received that kind of love and God wants you to demonstrate it. What act of faith, what act of love would require faith? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for letting us call you Father. Thank you for having a throne of grace. Thank you for letting us come into your presence. That while we were sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. That you allowed him to become sin so that we could become your righteousness. Thank you for demonstrating your love. Thank you for giving your love. Thank you for loving even when we're not attractive. Even when we don't bring anything to the table. Even when we're not lovely. And Father, I pray for those who need to receive your love today. I pray that today they would trust your son Jesus as their savior. And I just want to ask, with everybody here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, is there anyone here that would say that my act of faith today would be to 
receive the love of Jesus Christ. Would you just raise your hand in your seat? I want to pray for you in just a moment. It's true. I see you raise your hand in the back. I see a few hands back there. You can go ahead and raise your hand. I'm looking around the room. If you're in theater 14 too, even raise your hand there. Even if you're watching online, as an act of faith even, raise your hand and acknowledge that today I need to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. If you just raise your hand, would you just pray this prayer with me? I'll tell you what I'm going to pray. I'm not tricking you into anything. I'm going to pray admitting your sin before God, believing that Jesus died for that sin, and receiving Jesus as Savior. And if you want to do that, will you just pray this prayer with me? Father God, I admit my sin before you, that I am a sinner. And I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins and rose again and offers me love. I want to receive that love. You could even pray that just as you're sitting in your seat, in your heart. And today I want to ask Jesus Christ to be my Savior. And I want you to know, if you just prayed that prayer, I rejoice with you. I saw some people who raised their hand. And if you prayed that prayer, would you, before you leave today, tell somebody on our response team, come up and see me. At least mark it on your connection card and drop it in a box if you don't want to talk to anybody today. We're not going to make you do that. But we want to walk with you in that situation. We have a gift that we'd love to give you. We want to pray for you. That's a huge decision. So we rejoice with you in making that. And if you did that online, if you would just email our office, we'll send you some information. And Father, I pray for those that know your son Jesus Christ as their Savior that you'd burden their hearts with a new desire, a desire to love with your kind of love, a desire to be rejoicing in meeting others' needs. And I pray you'd give them a face. I pray you'd give them a circumstance. I pray you'd speak directly to their hearts of an act of love that would require faith and that we'd walk by faith with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.